please join me in the word of prayer before we go to the word. Our Father, we're once again before you. We are grateful to you for the opportunity that we had to worship you through singing, through giving, through preparing our hearts to hear from you. Father, I pray that you would at this moment calm our hearts and allow us to hear from you. Lord, we want you to do work in our hearts and we know that you do it through your word. We know that your word is alive. We know that your word works in our lives and I pray that this morning would be another moment where we hear from you. Lord Jesus, we want to see you this morning. Spirit of God, we pray that you would show us Christ in this passage because it is full of Christ. I pray that as we read these words, that as we walk through this passage, that we would have greater appreciation for Christ, that we would realize who he is once again and who we are in him. And as a result of that, that our lives would be transformed. I pray that we would find our satisfaction in Christ so that we would not have to go anywhere else to seek it. I pray and ask that this morning you would work powerfully through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You've heard it said that federal agents, when they try to spot counterfeit currency, they don't do it by studying the counterfeits. What they do is they spend an inordinate amount of time studying the genuine currency. When they do that, then and only then they're able to spot counterfeits. Tim Chalice, who lives in Canada, decided to check this for himself. So after much trouble, he finally was able to arrange a meeting with one of the nation's top experts on counterfeit currency. When they met, she confirmed that that is actually the process that they go through in training for their job. She summarized the process in four simple steps. She says, you take the genuine bill and you have to touch it, you have to tilt it, you have to look through it, and you have to look at it. When you touch it, you will have a certain feel because genuine currency is printed on special paper, so it has a certain feel to it. When you tilt it, you will see a line that will reflect every color of the rainbow. When you look through it, you will see a watermark image of the central portrait. And when you look at it, there will be certain lines and patterns which cannot be easily reproduced by casual counterfeiters. Now, after she has explained to him the process of uh, identifying genuine bills, she gave him a stack of bills, some of which were counterfeit. Now, with his limited knowledge and limited training, he was able to spot fake bills in the stack. Now, if you don't know what genuine currency looks like and feels like, then you are able and you will fall for the counterfeit. But this is not only true of currency, but this is true of life in general. Apostle Paul had a similar concern for the church in Colossae. They were threatened, not by counterfeit currency, but by counterfeit teaching that was being advocated by some in the church. There were, pe there were people who were bringing destructive heresies into the church. 
Now, some of that teaching was sophisticated, and it sounded really smart. These were not $100 bills drawn by your three-year-old. These were people who were bringing in persuasive arguments in order to convince genuine believers of what they were teaching. They were very wise. They were trained. They were philosophical and knowledgeable. But the problem is that what they were teaching was not true. So how does Paul address this situation in the church? Now, he could refute every argument that is being proposed, and he will do that in due time, but that is not where he begins. Where Paul begins, as we've been studying in chapter 1, he begins by exalting Christ. He begins by pointing his readers to who Christ is. If you recall in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, Paul talked about and he argued that Jesus Christ is supreme to all creation. Beginning in verse 18 through 23, Paul argued that Christ is supreme in the church. Then in verses 24 through the end of the chapter, Paul argued that Jesus Christ is supreme in ministry. Now in our verses here in chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, Paul will argue that Jesus Christ is supreme in life. His basic argument that is, if you look at Christ, and you understand who Christ is and what you are in him and what you have in him, then you will not be fooled by the heresies that are being promoted in your church. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Paul shows us that everything in your life must revolve around Christ. When Christ is the center of your life, when everything in your life is looked at from the perspective of Christ, then you will not fall for the heresies that are being taught. This is why in the first seven verses, Paul relates his struggle for the church in Colossae. He explains his struggle and he explains why he's struggling for them. He wants Colossians to know Christ. Here's Paul's Paul's argument from these verses. Since truth is the best safeguard against falsehood, and since all truth is found in Christ, we must excel in our knowledge of Christ. Let me say that again. Since truth is the best safeguard against falsehood, and since all truth is found in Christ, we must excel in our knowledge of Christ. Here's a question for you to ponder this morning. If the knowledge of Christ is so fundamental to your stability, How do you excel in the knowledge of Christ? Paul answers this question in the first seven verses of chapter 2. Join me as I read, beginning in chapter 1, verse 28, through chapter 2, verse 7. Paul says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, 
having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. The question we're asking this morning or we're answering this morning is how do you excel in the knowledge of Christ? Number one, for you to excel in the knowledge of Christ, you must struggle to know Christ. Now my choice of words here is intentional because we see Paul struggling in this text. I want you to see in this verse that number one, struggle is necessary. Now, there is a reason why I began reading in verse 28, where Paul continues his discussion, when, which he began in chapter 1, verse 24. Now, chapter divisions are not inspired. And for the past few Sundays, we've been looking at that section where Paul talked about the supremacy of Christ in his ministry. The purpose of Paul's ministry was to exalt Christ. There were unbelievers who needed to come to know Christ, and there were believers who needed to realize who they are in Christ, and they needed to grow in, their, in Christ-likeness so that they would be conformed to Christ. Now, Paul was not casual about his ministry. It wasn't just something that he did on Sunday morning or maybe once a week somewhere on some you know, Wednesday night. No, notice how Paul describes his ministry. In verse 29, he says, for this purpose, for what purpose? We proclaim Christ so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And in order for me to present every man complete in Christ, look at how he describes his ministry. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. I labor. I toil to the point of exhaustion. And then he explains it further, striving according to his power. Now this word striving has the same root as the word struggle in chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, I make every effort. I strain myself. I do everything possible to accomplish my ministry. This is how Paul saw his ministry. Now Paul wanted Colossians to know that. And that's why in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. We might ask, why? Paul, why, why do you want Colossians to know? Perhaps that is why he's been explaining what he's been explaining in the previous chapter. He was talking about his ministry in general. And now he zooms down and he says, guys, what I'm doing, how I'm laboring, how I'm striving, I am doing this for you. He gives him an example of his struggle. And notice who he's struggling for. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, church in Colossae, for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my faith. We see here at least three groups of people. We have this church to whom this letter is addressed. We have church in Laodicea, and we have other churches or other believers in the region who have not seen his face. 
Now, most face, most of these people have not seen Paul. Now, we know that Paul knows some of them because he will mention their, mention their names. People travel at that time. Paul sp- spent about three years in the region previously. And so some of these people know Christ. And yet he's writing to a church where most people don't know him. And yet he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. Now, this is personally convicting because Oftentimes, I fail to struggle even for the people that I know. And yet we have Paul here who is struggling for people who never saw his face. And yet he says, I struggle for you to the point of exhaustion. Now we might ask, how exactly did Paul struggle for them? I mean, after all, he's writing this from prison. Well, on the one hand, he is in prison because of his ministry. Because he's faithful in his proclamation of Christ, he ended up in prison. But more specifically, I believe in this text, when Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, he's referring to the spiritual struggle that he has for Colossians. We have a hint of this in chapter 4, verse 12. I want you to go there. In chapter 4, verse 12, Paul describing Epaphras, who is now in Rome with Paul. And Epaphras is probably their pastor. And notice that he uses similar language here. He says in chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, sends you his greeting. And then he adds this, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers so that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. When we have here laboring earnestly, it has the same root as the word struggle in chapter 2, verse 1. I mean, isn't that what Paul was talking about in Colossians chapter 1? When he says that since Epaphras came, since the day we heard of you, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask. Paul was in constant prayer for the church and for believers in Colossae. Not, Not only did Paul struggle for them in his prayer, Paul struggled to build them up. Paul labored to build them up. No doubt he was building up Epaphras who came. He was encouraging him, training him. He was writing this letter after all in order to encourage this church. He's coordinating with Tychicus and Onesimus who will deliver this letter to them. Now, what was the aim of Paul's struggle? What was the goal? He says here in chapter two, verse two, he says, I struggle that their hearts may be encouraged that their hearts may be encouraged. In this verse, this is the main verb here. Paul's struggle so that the hearts of the believers in Colossae may be encouraged. This word encouraged, there are varying shades of meaning to this word. It can mean to entreat, to appeal, to summon, comfort, exhort, encourage, strengthen, and the context determines the meaning of the word. And in this case, most likely the best translation, Paul is talking about their hearts being strengthened. Why? Because they're being attacked by heresies. And Paul says that my struggle, my desire is that your hearts may be strengthened. Strengthened by what? Strengthened by the knowledge of Christ. Now, what does Paul refer to when he says, I want your hearts to be encouraged? Now, heart usually refers to the inner person and often equated with mine. For example, in Revelation 2.23, Jesus says, I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, synonyms, and I will give to each one according to your deeds. You see, the way God works in us is that he never bypasses the mind. 
We're not talking about some spiritual experience or some mystical experience that all of a sudden you're going to grow in your knowledge of Christ. The way you grow in your knowledge of Christ is when the truth of God goes through your mind and that builds your heart and strengthens your heart. That's why we preach the truth. That's why we spend time in the word. That's why you constantly need to hear the truth and others need to tell you the truth and you need to tell the truth to others. Because when you are not in the word, your mind begins to drift. That's why you need the word. That's why you need teachers. That's why you need other people in your life. And notice that this encouragement that Paul talks about, it will only come when there is unity. Because notice he says here that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love. Growth and the knowledge of Christ only comes as a result of holding to Christ and holding to one another. This is the theme that Paul will return again and again to in this letter and others. For example, if you skip down to verse 18, and look at verse 18 and 19, Paul says, let no one defraud you, keep, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. And notice this phrase, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth which is from God. Growth will be a result of body being united and all the members contributing to one another. You need other people in your life in order for you to grow in the knowledge of Christ. And as your knowledge of Christ increases, so will your convictions grow as well. Notice this, as you comprehend more and more of Christ, what he has done for you, what you are in him, what you have in him, how you ought to live and what you have to do, you're standing in Christ. You will be assured of your standing in Christ. Now, we've got to be careful here not to separate theory from practice. Now, we're not talking about just some complex or mixed mystical experience or theory that you just learn and you store it away in your mind. No, there is always connection between your head knowledge and your practice. Remember when I was in high school, I took a chemistry class and me and chemistry were not great friends. And I recall one day asking a teacher about some problem we were trying to solve. And I, I went up to him and we were talking and he's just like explaining it all. And I uh, pretend that I understand it. And later that day, we, we had exactly the same question on the quiz and I answered it wrong. Because I didn't get it. You see, unless, unless you're able to apply the truth in life, you don't understand it. You can say that intellectually you know Christ, that you know some truths about Christ, but if that truth does not make its way into your life, you don't know it, you don't understand it. You have to apply what you know. The truth that we hear must be processed by our heads, received by our hearts, and work itself out through our hands. No wonder Paul talks about struggle here. There's a reason why we read Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul describes his struggle. He describes his personal struggle to know Christ. He uses words like, for example, in 3.12, he says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. Paul's struggle in his life to know Christ. 
In this passage, we see that Paul's struggle for Colossians to know Christ. And we can say that you and I must engage in the same struggle to know Christ as well. And only then, our assurance will grow. Now notice, as I said earlier, that the aim of the struggle is to know Christ. The aim of your personal struggle, the aim of your ministry is so that others come into the knowledge of Christ. Notice in verse 2 at the end, he says that this struggle or this encouragement would result in a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ himself. This is the third time in the span of a few verses, this word mystery is used. It's used 27 times in the New Testament. And mystery is always a new truth that has been revealed, which was hidden in the Old Testament. It is always divine revelation from God, which was not disclosed to people during the Old Testament. It is something that God wants you to know. It's not something mystery that we can't explain, we can't understand. No, it's the mystery that has now been made known to us through apostles and the prophet. Now we know that church is a mystery. Church is a mystery because it was something that was not revealed in the Old Testament. Not that God would save Gentiles, because even in the Old Testament, we have people like Abel, Noah, Job, Ruth. None of them were Jews, and yet they were saved. It's not that God will save Gentiles, but it is that God will take Jews and Gentiles and bring them into one body. That was a mystery that was not disclosed in the Old Testament. In our chapter, or previous chapter, chapter 1, verse 27, he says, not only will God bring Jews and Gentiles into one body, he says, God himself, or Christ himself, will dwell in you. Look at chapter 1, verse 27. He says, the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And what is it? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ himself will dwell in you. Now, in our text here, Paul says that as we grow in our knowledge of Christ, we begin to understand the mystery. And what is the mystery here? Knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. In Christ, God revealed himself. God himself was in the person of Christ because Jesus himself was God, something that Paul talked about again and again, even in this book. And notice he says here that in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this word mystery was a familiar word to people who lived in Colossae because heretics came and they also were offering mysteries. They also claimed that they had a special vision, that they had a special revelation, that an angel came to them and gave them a special message, and that it is only for those who were initiated. And Paul says, no, no, they don't have mysteries. They don't have special knowledge. All of the mystery, all knowledge and all wisdom, they're found in one person. And that one person is Jesus Christ. True mystery is in Christ. And by the way, this Christ is not somewhere out there where you got to go and search for him and look for him. No, he already said that this Christ dwells in you. You don't have to look for it somewhere out there. Christ dwells in you. And in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now you got to struggle to know Christ. You got to struggle. But notice he says that this struggle is not just for nothing. This struggle is rewarding because it is in Christ. He says, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What if I told you you can 
go to your backyard. And in your backyard, 20 feet below the surface, is a treasure that is worth millions of dollars. Would you dig for it? Or would you say, nah, too much work? Now, Paul says here that you have treasure that is worth much more than millions of dollars. You have Jesus Christ himself, and Jesus Christ himself dwells in you. If everything is in Christ, if you already have everything, if your bank account is full, why would you fall for philosophies, legalism, mysticism, asceticism, and the like that he'll mention in the rest of this chapter? If you have a spring of fresh water in your backyard, would you go across the street to a community park and get a drink of water from a public fountain? Of course you wouldn't. If you find your satisfaction in Christ, you won't have to go and search anything or anyone else. All you need for life and godliness is found in Christ. Now, specifically in this chapter, Paul will talk about how you are saved and how you maintain your salvation, how you fight against sin. Because later on, he will say that some of these matters, they have appearance of wisdom, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now, if we just take this and we bring it into a practical realm, practically speaking, how do you struggle to know Christ? We can ask a different question. How do you get to know a person? Now, if it's just some person in history, you can perhaps get a book about him or you can watch a documentary if there is one available. But if you want to know person himself, it starts with two basic things. You have to talk to the person and you have to listen to the person. How do you get to know your wife? Well, you talk to her and you listen to her. How do you get to know a friend? You spend time together talking and listening. Now, it is no different with Christ. In order for you to get to know Christ, you need to talk to Christ and you need to listen to Christ. You talk to him in your prayer and he speaks to you in his word. That's why you read scripture every morning. You open your Bible with the desire to hear from Christ, not just for a check mark. Now, as you pray, you, are com- you have communion with Christ. You are speaking to him and he's speaking to you. Now, as your knowledge of the person begins to increase, you begins to do things that are pleasing to that person so that your relationship continues to grow. And we're back in Colossians 1, where Paul says, I pray that your knowledge of Christ will increase for what purpose? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You please him in all respects. You bear fruit in every good work. And you continue to increase in the knowledge of God. And you start all over again. Your relationship with Christ grows. You understand better who he is, what he's done, what you are in him, what he requires of you. You become more and more obedient to him and you continue to go through this cycle. Now, none of this is effortless, but it is worth it. Now, your progress in this journey of knowing Christ will not always look the same. I mean, sometimes you will be running, if you will. Sometimes you will be walking. Sometimes maybe you'll be crawling or maybe just facing in the right direction. But one thing you can do is you can go back. You can go back. You must guard the ground that you have already conquered. And that's why in this passage, in verse 4, Paul praises Colossians for standing firm on the ground that they have already conquered by Christ. If the first thing is you must struggle in your knowledge of Christ or you must struggle to know Christ, the second thing 
is you must stand in the knowledge of Christ. Look at verse 4. He says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. I mean, don't you love the clarity? You don't have to guess why Paul wrote this. He says here, I say this. This is why I'm writing this. This is why I'm telling you this. I am telling you this because there is a threat. Because someone is trying to delude you with persuasive arguments. If you look at different translations, they tra- translate this term in various ways. If you, look at, if you have ESV, it says with plausible arguments. NIV says fine-sounding arguments. NLT says well-crafted arguments. King James, enticing words. Now, these guys probably had a lot of letters after their name. They knew how to make an argument. And Paul says that these arguments on their face might sound very persuasive. This word is used only one other time in James chapter 1, verse 22, where James says, prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. These false arguments are aimed to delude you, aimed to take you away from Christ. Now, a similar thing was happening in the, church of, in the churches of Galatia. Paul came there. Paul preached the gospel to them. He left, and then these false teachers came in, and they were trying to preach their heresies, and they had persuasive arguments. And that's why when Paul writes a letter to them, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose Christ Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Notice Paul says, I came to you, I preached Christ to you. I exalted Christ. I showed you how magnificent Christ is. And then someone else came in. And they took your eyes off of Christ and they put your eyes on everything else but Christ. He says, you're foolish. Why would you betray Christ for anything else? The churches in Galatia fell for these persuasive arguments. However, it was not the case here in the church of Colossae. They were threatened by it, but they didn't succumb to it. Again, notice in verse 5, he says, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, and I rejoice to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Now, though they were physically apart, Paul says it is as though spiritually we have unity with one another. As he heard the report from Epaphras, it was as if Paul was physically present there, and he watched the church in Colossae. And as he watched them, he says that I rejoice over two things that mark your standing in Christ. First of all, they were standing corporately as a church. Because he says here in verse 5, I am rejoicing to see your good discipline. Now, this is a military term. It refers to battle array or a military formation. Paul was writing from prison, so he knew a little bit about soldiers and about military arrays. Now, the church as a whole was standing against these false teachers and their heresies. They were not given in. And Epaphras came and he reported to them that they still maintain their faith. They still maintain their love for one another. And the church stood strong. But not only did they stand stand together corporately, but they stood individually. Because Paul says, I rejoice to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. You see, the chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Each person in the church demonstrated this resolute firmness. 
They were not retreating from their positions. And notice Paul highlights the stability of their faith in Christ. You see, every trial is a test of your faith. Are you going to continue to believe in Christ? Are you going to hold on to Christ? Are you going to obey Christ even when it's hard? Are you going to trust Christ even when you are being offered something that is very appealing and very persuasive? Not only is every trial a test of faith, every temptation is also a test of faith. Am I going to believe that Jesus is better than that thing that the world is offering to me? Are you tempted to lie, to lust, to hide, to rely on yourself, to be the Holy Spirit in people's life? In every situation, you have a choice to make. Am I going to rest in Christ or am I going to jump on that next shiny object that is offered to me? Paul says, I look at the church in Colossae. I hear about report of their faith and I see that they are standing firm. Are you? No, we're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about you never falling. We're not, it's, it's about direction. It's where you're going. It's your growth and your understanding of Christ and your life must reflect that. Day by day, month by month, year by year, there, there is progress in our knowledge of Christ. And one of the enemies to our spiritual progress is contentment. Contentment with where you are. You see, if you are content with your fitness situation, you will not work harder when you exercise. In fact, you'll be tempted to skip your workouts. If you're content with your financial situation, you'll just do things as usual. But it is exactly the same way in the spiritual life. In the spiritual life, you will not stay in the same place for a long time. You will either be progressing in your knowledge of Christ or you will be regressing. And that's why Paul concludes this section with therefore, therefore. The first one is that you must struggle to know Christ. Then you must stand in what you know about Christ. And then he concludes and he says, you must strive to know Christ more. Look at verse six. Verse six, he says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now you can make an argument that a lot of what's been said in this book has been building up to this verse. This is the first therefore in this book. In this first, we have the first imperative that you are commanded to do something. Up until now, Paul has been explaining theology. He has been explaining who Christ is, who we are in him. And only here and only now, Paul is given command to the church in Colossae. Paul has been building up and explaining the supremacy of Christ. He reminded them that they have been reconciled in Christ, that they have been made complete, that they have been made perfect. And now in this verse, he brings it all together. Now look at this phrase. He says, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord. Now Paul is referring back to their conversion. When Epaphras traveled to the city, he began to preach the gospel to them. They began to 
hear the gospel, understand the gospel, and accept the gospel. And as the verse says here, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. You see, the core of the gospel is Jesus Christ. The gospel is that God is holy, that you are sinful. Because you are sinful, God has to justly condemn you because God is holiness, holy, and his holiness demands payment for sin. That because you are holy, you cannot please God on your own. That's where Christ comes in. Jesus Christ comes in, and Jesus Christ went to the cross, and he took your sin so that he would die as your substitute. And if you confess your sin, if you say about your sin what God says about your sin, and if you place your faith in Christ, if you put on Christ, your sins are forgiven, and you are given the righteousness of Christ. Now, when you hear that message, when you believe, you are made perfect. You are made complete. And that is what happened when Paul preached Christ to them. Now, notice it is interesting the way Paul puts it here. He says, as you have received Christ Jesus, but he doesn't stop there. As you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord. Now, this is referring back to everything he's been talking about up to now. Jesus Christ is the Lord over creation. Jesus Christ is the Lord over the church. Jesus Christ is the Lord over ministry. Jesus Christ is Lord over your life. Jesus Christ is Lord as a result of his ministry. He was highly exalted and God bestowed on him a name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Jesus Christ was declared to be Lord. And in this passage, Paul says that when Epaphras came and he preached the gospel, he preached the Lordship of Christ that you have to bow before Christ. You're either going to bow before him now or you're going to bow before him in the future, but you will definitely bow. And notice he says that these people in this church, when they heard the gospel about Jesus Christ, they have received Christ Jesus as Lord. Now, Jesus Christ is Lord and you must submit to him. You can't be saved unless you receive Christ Jesus the Lord. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, St. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The first step to you becoming a Christian is accepting Jesus as your Lord. He's the one who bought you. The Father has transferred you into his kingdom. He is king over you, and as your king, he reigns over you, and he has right to tell you how to live. Jesus Christ is supreme, not only on Sunday, but every day of the week. Now, when Paul writes this, he's saying that there is connection between you receiving Christ and your, you living your life in Christ. Every aspect of your life is now under his sovereign rule and authority. How you live, how you work, how you serve, and everything in between is under the lordship of Christ. Now, in case you haven't noticed it, look at the verse again. Paul gives him the first command. He says, live in light of the lordship of Christ. Now, again, notice this parallel. Parallel between your reception of Christ and your walk in Christ. He says, therefore, as you have received, in exactly the same way as you received him, so walk. So we have to ask the question, how did you receive Christ? And the answer is simple. You receive Christ by faith, not by working for it, 
Not by jumping through magic hoops. No, you receive Christ by faith. You receive Christ by believing in the gospel that was preached to you. And just like you receive Christ in exactly the same way, he says, you walk in Christ. You don't get saved by faith and now start to earn your salvation or pay off your salvation or maintain your salvation by your works. That is not the gospel. Colossians were saved by faith and they continued to walk by faith. And that's why Paul says, I rejoice in the stability of what? Of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now walk is Paul's favorite metaphor for Christian life. He talks about life. He says, I want you to live your life under the lordship of Christ. What you do is a result of what Christ has done for you. You're not trying to achieve holiness by your perfection or by your performance. He already said, and he will say it again, that you are complete in Christ, but that does not mean that you don't do anything. Walking refers to living in light of your union with Christ. His life has transformed your life. So now the way you live, the way you act is different than the way you lived before. Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2 verse 6 says this, the one who says he abides in him, the one who claims to have union with Christ, he says this, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. You may claim that you have union with Christ. You may claim that you are in Christ, but if you do not walk in the same manner as he walked, your claim is bogus. That's what he's saying. And Paul says here, Colossians have received Christ and now they live their life in light of that. And the question you might ask yourself is, does my life reflect the life of Christ? Your personal life, your family life, your work life, your social life, your social media life. I mean, when people look at you, when people look at your family, when people read your Facebook post or your Instagram post, would they say that, man, Jesus is Lord of that life? Would they say that? Paul says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Continue to grow in your knowledge of Christ and continue to reflect his life in you in your daily life. Now to illustrate this point, Paul gives four descriptions in verse 7. Now, there are three pictures here and one overarching attitude. And we can say that all three pictures basically say the same thing. First metaphor he uses, Paul says that in your walk with Christ, strive to go deeper. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. He says, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted. Now, with this picture, Paul refers something to something to that which happened at the moment of their conversion and which continues as they walk in their life. Notice this agricultural picture here. He says, you have been firmly rooted. I'm reminded of Psalm 1, where Paul says there is a blessed man and a blessed man is taken and he's planted by the streams of water. There is abundant water for his growth. Your roots go down deep. And in this picture here, Paul says that, when you were saved, God has taken you from the world and he has planted you in his vineyard. And now you have roots that keep 
going down deeper and deeper. And notice that it's not just something that has happened in the past. Yes, it is that something that God has done for you because it is passive, because you have been firmly rooted. But you have roots that go deep down in Christ and you get your nourishment from Christ. God is doing that in your life just like he has done it when you were converted. But notice there's more here because there's a second picture here. And he says, not only strive to go deeper, but he says, strive to go higher. He changes his metaphor. And he says, you have been rooted in him, and now you are being built up in him. If the first one was agricultural, now he's using architecture. He's like, imagine a building. They have dug a huge hole. They have laid the foundation. And now they're building on a story by story. He says, that's what happened to you. God has taken you. He has placed you on the foundation. You have been firmly rooted. And now, as you're being built by Christ, as your knowledge of Christ grows, you are being, you're growing higher and higher and higher in your understanding. Like each story that is added to the building, he says, you are being built up and you're becoming more mature because you are in Christ and because life of Christ manifests itself in you. The question we might ask is, how do you get built up in Christ? Speaking to elders in the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, listen to what Paul says. He says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. God is building you up by his word. Not only do you strive to go deeper, you strive to go higher, you strive to go wider. Notice again, verse seven, he says, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith. Now you can argue that this metaphor here is a result of the first two. When you have been deeply rooted, when you are growing up and you're being built up like that building, you are stable. When I think about established, you're talking about, you know, you take a wide stance. When you take a wide stance, it's, you're not gonna be easily toppled over. He says, you are so firmly rooted. You are so assured of your standing in Christ that you will not be knocked down by some guy who's preaching some nonsense. Epaphras came. Epaphras preached the truth to them. Paul wrote a letter to them. And that's why Paul says here, just as you were instructed. It is the truth of God that builds you up and that strengthens you so that you would be able to stand and you will be able to see where the truth is and where the counterfeits are. So you are striving to go deeper, striving to go higher, striving to go wider, which is basically saying the same thing in many different ways. And then he says that there is an attitude in all this. You strive to be thankful a description of a person who is growing in Christ-likeness, a description of a person who is walking by faith, he says, you are overflowing with gratitude. This is the only participle in this verse that is an active voice. This is something that you are doing. As God works in you, as God conforms you to his image, as your knowledge of Christ increases, as your understanding of who you are in Christ increases, as your obedience to God increases, he says you will be marked by thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a mark of a mature Christian. Christ, the one who lives in you, produce, produces in you both joy and thanksgiving. Now we begin by examining how the expert 
detect counterfeit currency. See, the best way to spot it is to know what real one looks like. Now in this chapter, as we go on from verse 8 and on, Paul is going to talk about all the counterfeits that are being offered to the church in Colossae and the ones that are being offered to you and me today. But notice that he began by looking at Christ. Christ is the supreme being. If you know Christ, if you are in Christ, if Christ dwells in you, you have everything that you need. He lays this foundation that will help you withstand all the heresies and all the attacks that are being leveled against you. Someone will come to you or you will turn on your television and there will be someone who will tell you that there is a guy who has some secret knowledge that the Lord has spoke to him and the Lord said this and this and you will say thanks, but no thanks. I have Jesus Christ and I have already everything in him. Others will come and tell you that there are some rules, man-made rules, regulations that you need to obey to be saved or to maintain your salvation. And you'll say thanks, but no thanks. I have Jesus Christ who has done it all for me and I am complete in Christ. Still others perhaps will come to your door and he will preach to you Jesus who is not God. Jesus who is not supreme over all. And you will say thanks, but no thanks. This is not the Jesus that I believe in or walk in. This can only happen if you are rooted in Christ. If you so know Christ that you will be able to detect heresies from afar. That's why we struggle to know Christ. That's why we stand in the truth that we know about Christ. And that's why day after day we strive to know more of Christ as we live and as we walk with Christ. You see, we will spend this life and eternity knowing Christ or learning things about Christ. Here and now, we are susceptible to error. And that's why we cling to Christ. And that's why as we study this passage, we see that Paul is arguing that the truth is the best safeguard against falsehood. And since all truth is found in Christ, we must excel in our knowledge of Christ. May the Lord increase our faith and increase our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for being good to us. Jesus, we thank you for being in us. We thank you that all the truth is in you and it is through you that we can know and we can have all everything that we need for life and for godliness. I pray that through your word, you would increase our knowledge of you. I pray that as we interact with you, as we walk in obedience to you, that we would walk in our understanding and our knowledge of you would increase. Our obedience to you would increase. We pray that we would be able to stand against the errors. Not only those errors that were promoted thousands of years ago, but the same errors are being promoted today. I ask you that you would protect us, that you would guard us, and that you would give us grace to cling to Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.